0: The Medical School HQ Podcast, Session Number Ninety Six.
1: The big impetus for doing the three-year was to continue with the philosophy of C Twenty-One, which was to allow the students individualize the instruction to suit their needs. Hey, this is Z Dog MD, rapper, physician, legendary turntable health revolutionary, and part-time gardener. And you're listening to the Medical School HQ Podcast, hosted by the irredeemably awesome Ryan
0: Gray. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help you on your path to becoming a physician. Well, welcome back. If this is not your first time listening, and welcome if this is your first time. This is the Medical School Headquarters podcast where we talk all things medical school, taking you from pre-med to medical school and talking about some, some things about medical school and talking about medicine in general and being a physician. I first want to let you know that you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes, if you go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes, and you'll get every podcast that we release free right on your phone, mobile device, computer, wherever. So in case you didn't know that, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and go subscribe for free. This week, we have an awesome interview. But before I talk about that interview, go check out premedlife.com. They're our partner Magazine. They put out a magazine every two months, a digital magazine as well as a physical magazine to a lot of college campuses. And the current issue right now is the July and August 2014 issue, talking about their big cover story is the best medical school for the entrepreneurial student. Kind of an interesting twist. They have tips to prepare your finances before medical school, which is something we covered a couple weeks ago and is very important, and some other stuff. So go check it out, premedlife.com. So this week, I'm talking to Dr. Rivera, and Dr. Rivera is the Associate Dean for Admission and Financial AIDS and the Director of Admissions at NYU School of Medicine. He's an Assistant Professor in the Department of Radiology and Division of Pediatric Radiology. And Dr. Rivera and I talk about something that NYU is doing very different than a lot of other medical schools, and it's very interesting. I originally reached out to him because NYU has a new three-year MD program, and that's not necessarily new because a lot of schools are going to this three-year MD program, but NYU is giving it a little bit of a twist, and instead of many of the other colleges that are doing three-year MD programs, which are pretty much primary care directed and oriented, NYU is opening up all of their residencies to this three-year MD program. So you apply to the school and you apply to residency pretty much at the same time if you're accepted into this program, which is awesome. And Dr. Rivera and I talk all About it. So I'm excited to talk to him today and have you learn all about this program and kind of the direction that I think maybe medical education needs to go. So let's get started. Dr. Rivera, thanks for joining us today on the show. I want to start by talking about how you got into medicine. When exactly you decided that being a physician was right for you?
1: Thanks, first of all, for having me, Ryan. When did I decide I wanted to go into medicine? You know, I think I decided early on, sort of in elementary school, in large part because of experiences I had with my pediatrician. I really enjoyed the way he made me feel in the office. I had always loved science for a variety of reasons. I actually wanted to get the same feeling that he had when he helped me through a particular illness or whatnot. And so, you know, I enjoyed the sciences through high school, went to uh, Cornell undergrad and continued the course. I graduated From Cornell Med in 1995, which now seems like so long ago. And then, you know, in terms of residencies, I was, at the time, I was split between orthopedics and radiology. And it's interesting because, you know, mentors are key in our development. And one of the mentors I had was one of my psych professors. And he gave us a talk about making sure that you look at what you want out of life long term, right? Not just what you want within the next five or 10 years but see how medicine as a career would fit into the kind of life that you had envisioned and if it allowed for the other interests that you had. And as much as I loved ortho, I mean, I, mean, I really, something about a power tool and, and the fracture just <laughs> really did it for me. But, you know, I, I looked long-term and I was thinking, I also love to sleep. And, you know, the thought of waking up every morning at 5.30, if so I can be in the OR by, you know, 6, 6.30, I just realized that probably wasn't going to be a wise choice for me and I also wanted to have a family and not be the kind of person who wasn't around so much for them. So the other thing I really enjoyed was radiology. Particularly love technology. You know, I'm a tech gadget hound, and I liked being the doc who who has answers and has the interactions with patients where you know you, somebody comes to you with a problem, you investigate it in some way, you come up with an answer to what the problem is, and you say God bless you, have a great life. And that was very appealing to me to be part of the team in that way. So I did uh, my radiology residency at NYU, and from the minute I got here, I really loved the culture here. I've really been made to feel at home here, and so much so, in fact, that after I finished radiology here, stayed on for a pediatric radiology fellowship, and then stayed on at staff. As for admissions, well, you know, I'd always been involved in admissions, even when I was in undergrad, kind of interesting, because one of the reasons I like admissions work is because I like psychiatry as well. And it kind of gives me a sense into what makes people tick, what makes people choose medicine as a career, why they value it so much, and it complements what I do in radiology because radiology, I can provide direct patient care to one person at a time. With admissions, what we do here is we can impact the healthcare delivery to large populations based on the selection of the future medical students. So I did that in undergrad, continued being on the committee in med school. And so when I got here, you know, I was chomping at the bit to do it. My preceding dean of admissions, who was also one of my mentors and the pediatric office, got me on the interview track there. And so I moved from there to the, uh, you know, executive committee that made decisions, was involved in curricular reform efforts for our new curriculum that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a bit. And uh, then when the prior dean stepped down, that was my opportunity to fulfill my dream of working in admissions. And I've uh, been doing this for about three years now, and it really is a dream
0: job. That's great. Yeah, I love the point that you made about affecting more than just one patient at a time, because that's kind of my mission with what I'm doing with the podcast, too, is I can treat a patient in the exam room, but with the pre-meds and the medical students that I get to reach with this podcast, I'm hoping that's an exponential growth in patient care.
1: Oh, exactly. You know, and as I said before, mentor is extremely important, and what we do is... You're mentoring, in a way, to large groups of budding physicians. And hopefully what we do will positively impact the care that they give to the patients down their own. Exactly.
0: So you mentioned a little bit about some curriculum reform. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today is the program that you guys have there with your three-year MD program and what seems to be a growing trend throughout medical education throughout the country Now, you guys have a little bit of a different twist on it, and we'll talk about that, but I want to know, when did all of this start materializing?
1: So, you know, when you look at how med schools in the U.S. have been training docs, it it really goes all the way back to Flexner's report, you know, wherein he espoused that two plus two mile, right? So two years of preclinical basic sciences, and then two years of clinical instruction. And and I've always been amazed at how um, forward-thinking we are as a profession with regards to the treatment options that we give and yet how extremely conservative we are in how we educate folks. And, you know, most schools haven't really deviated much from that 2 plus 2 model. Some forward-thinking schools started doing it in the late 80s and 90s, at the very least. And uh, when we were looking at the revising our curriculum, we wondered why it was that every student who was going through med school, whether they were going to be a pediatrician, you know, or, or a neurosurgeon, they followed the exact same set of steps for the vast majority of the way through med school. So we moved to our new curriculum, which is called C21, which is a short for the curriculum for the 21st century, earlier this century. We started work on it in the early 2000s and moved to it fully by by 2010. And what that does is it moves away from the two plus two model and has uh, one and a half years of an integrated preclinical instructive period. And, you know, we achieve synergies of scale by bringing in clinical science concepts, presenting them such that you can see how the basic science concepts Applied to clinical patients. And I, you know, I remember I learned in the same two plus two model, right? Where there was an artificial separation between anatomy and pathology and so forth. But I do remember that when it came time to study for the boards, I thought I'd be more efficient if I could do it by integrating things on a systems level, right? So for cardiovascular, for example, I'd look at how the heart forms during embryology and what the normal anatomic structures look like, what the normal physiology is like, and then how the normal Becomes abnormal. And so, what would the heart look like after an MI? You know, how would the pumping ability change? And what medicine could we give to improve, you know, the, the cardiac contractility? And I found that studying in that way allowed me to A, be more efficient with my time, and D, allow me to have those concepts stick better. And so, that's what we've done here. And we introduced this practice of medicine course at day one that allows the students to see patients with those diseases that they're currently studying so that it further reinforces what they're learning. And so that allows us to basically shorten the preclinical instruction to one and a half years. Now doing so allows us significant freedom on the back end, right? So that's the first stage. Second stage is a full year of core clerkships. And then in our four-year instruction, that allows for electives that can be taken as early as the second year. So if students are interested in doing a competitive field like, let's say, dermatology, they can start doing that as early as the second year, maybe get lined up in a research project. One of the other things that that allowed us to do is it allowed us to have a variety of different dual degree programs. For example, we recently set up MBA program that allows folks to get both degrees in five years, right? And so then you start thinking, wow, so it's not like they're doing the MD degree in four years and then doing all of the MBA in one year. No, it's closer to one and a half plus for the MBA and a little less than three and a half for the MD part. So then you can start seeing that, yeah, you know what? You can do the MD in three years. And there has been a lot of... You know, press and literature about how, um, to use, I guess, so their speak, inefficient we are in general in terms of training our docs. And doctors Emmanuel and Fuchs in that JAMA article in 2012 said that you can cut out, what was it, something like 30% of the overall length of medical training without adversely affecting physician competency or quality of care. And they specifically espoused taking one year out of medical school. And there were a variety of reasons why that sort of resonated with us. One of it is that, you know, if you look at, The average age of physicians in practice, the number of docs who are younger than 35 in the workforce, if you look at it since 1975, has decreased almost in half from about 28% to 15%. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you know, partly because I think students are coming into the medical career a bit younger, but in large part, it's because medical school training hasn't really changed in duration, but residency and fellowship training continues to expand. And so, doctors are getting into practice at later and later years in life. And, you know, when I talked earlier before about what we do in admissions, looking at things from like a public health perspective, from a large-scale perspective, we are, in effect, reducing the number of productive physician years that society then can benefit from the resource they themselves invested in. And so that's one of the things that got us thinking about the three-year degree. There are a variety of other things, including, you know, linkage, being able to track our students too from undergraduate medical education to the graduate medical education and financial but we can talk about that more as the conversation proceeds.
0: That's very interesting how that all came about. It makes a lot of sense when you talk about it in that way. And I know and you know, having gone through traditional two plus two programs, that typically that fourth year most would consider I wouldn't say it's a waste, but mm-hmm. it is very inefficient like you were saying earlier. And that kind of rolls into the applications for residency which people are students are applying for all of the electives that they're doing and the so-called kind of trials at these residency programs doing electives while they're there. And Exactly. And with your program with this 3-year program, you kind of talked about it a little bit with the linkages. You it sounds like are removing all that extra application time as well because these students know what residency they're going to kind of immediately.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the big impetus for doing the three-year was to continue with the philosophy of C21, which was to allow the students to individualize the instruction to suit their needs, right? To allow them to become the kind of doctors that they wanted to be. And I'm not in any way saying that the three-year degree is perfect for everyone. So for example, for myself, I didn't even know what a radiologist was when I was applying, So it wouldn't have worked for me. Just because it doesn't work for me doesn't mean it wouldn't be perfect for somebody else. And so the joke that I always say, which is true actually, that some of the neurosurgeons, for example, that I know have known that they have wanted to be a neurosurgeon since they were a fetus. So for them, this is perfect. And the neurosurgery department, for example, is a really strong proponent of this because they realize how long the postgraduate training is and the ability to get a student into their family, so to speak, have them be mentored from day one is of enormous value to them. And I, I was meeting with the residency program director the other day, and he was pretty proud of the student that they have right now who's already doing cutting-edge research with them and has come up with ideas that he himself had not thought of. As you said before, the fourth year in a perfect world, the fourth year would be of immense value. But again, what one person values is not necessarily what somebody else Wants to have, and the reality of the situation is that, as you said, is you know the fourth year that's currently structured. If we're completely honest with ourselves, has been for the most part co-opted by the residency application process. So a good chunk of the year, at least half, is taken up. You know those away rotations you described, where people try to prove themselves to programs that they'd like to go to. Then you've got the residency application process, where the students will basically fly across the country, and that becomes particularly expensive for folks. There's a good deal of angst that goes on there. So the point is, if you are going into the degree, into school, and you have a very good idea of what you want to do, and you have a good idea that you want to stay in New York, for example, then this pathway could be perfect for that person.
0: Yeah. Now, I mentioned that a lot of other schools are looking at three-year MD programs and are trying Mm -hmm. them. From what I've seen, the majority of them are doing primary care only for their training. So if you're interested in going into a primary care specialty, then you can apply for the three-year program. You've decided to open it up for every residency program that NYU offers. Did you look at both of those models and why did you come to what you guys ended up doing?
1: Yeah, we did look at both models. And the reason we opted to go to offer all of our residency options, again, is in line with that core philosophy. It's about giving students as much choice is they need to make the best decision that they can and primary care is hugely important as we all know to the future of healthcare delivery in the country. So are, as an aside, you know, people say inner cities where there are underserved areas, there's an immense need for primary care doctors, that's what we really need there. And that's true but it's not the complete story. That's not to say that in underserved areas, they don't also need gastroenterologists or reconstructive surgeons. So we think it's important to be able to allow the students to have a broad collection of individual choices as to what kind of career path they'd like to follow. So when we set out, you know, thanks to Dr. Grossman and Drs. Abramson, our dean and vice dean for education, they were clear that this was what we were going to do with the school with regards to how we were going to differentiate our program and how it was aligned with the strategic goals of our C21 curriculum. And you know, thankfully, we have buy-in from all of our 20 residency programs. And the nice part about that is that the way students apply to the program is after they've been accepted into the four-year program, they then designate which program they'd like to apply to. And then they kind of have an interview process similar to what they would normally have during the fourth year, for example. They interview with the residency program directors and their teams, and then the residency program directors come back to the admissions office and give us a, map, a rank list of who they would like and in what order and then we get the acceptance in uh, late April or early May.
0: That's interesting. So you apply, so if I'm a pre-med student and I'm filling out my AMCAS application, knowing I want to do this three-year program or try to, I would apply Mm -hmm. through AMCAS to NYU like everybody else does? Right. Okay.
1: So the way it works is you apply through AMCAS, right? You fill out the primary application that everybody gets, and then you fill out the NYU secondary application. If you're interested in the three-year degree, at the time you start to apply or after you've been accepted, you can then fill out the tertiary application. It's not as long as a secondary. It basically asks you to denote what residency you're applying to and then has two essays basically asking you about why you chose that specific residency and what you've done to justify that choice. The only way that application can then proceed to the next step is that you first have to be accepted by the committee into the four-year pathway. Once that's the case, then we look at all the applications that have also applied to the 3 year and then send those through to the residency program directors for the programs to which you applied they then review decide who they'd like to interview and then they will call people back usually the time frame for that is going to be in about march or early april they set up interviews with the department they give you tours you get a sense of what it'd be like to be a resident there and we try to do that so that it coincides with revisit events so that it you know basically minimizes the the cost impact to students and then we let students know before the well, what used to be the May 15th deadline to drop all but one acceptance. And this year, it's moving up to April 30th, so we'll move that deadline up accordingly. And then the students who've been accepted, and we usually shoot for a target of around somewhere between, I don't know, 7 and 10% of the class to be in the three-year degree. They start in July, and they start with a series of coursework that we have designed specifically for them. And one of the nice parts about that coursework is that it allows the three-year students to bond as a group, and then they also start to meet their departments and their mentors in their departments that they get assigned on day one. The other thing that I'd like to point out is that you know, as I said before, the three-year program wouldn't have worked for me had there only been the option to apply at the time of med school application. And we realize that people you know will make the decision later on during their medical school career, if you will. So we've recently introduced plans to allow for an opt-in option, right? So you could start as part of the four-year class. And then there are two entry points, the last one being in the beginning of third year, that allow you to say, yeah, you know what? I've made my decision now. This is what I want to go into. And so then apply to the three-year through that pathway. And I think that ultimately, we're probably going to be getting more people doing that route than doing the opt-in. But still, there are going to be some people who know clearly what they want from day one and want to lock that in. And then I guess the last thing I wanted to say with regards to that is that there, again, it's about choice. So there are three, four, and five-year options, and you can move between those options. So let's say, you know, you've matched keys here, and you apply, and the way that the residency thing works is you're guaranteed the spot here, so we will hold the spot for you. When the residency application time comes, you do apply through the standard NRMP process, but we will rank you number one on the list. And then so if you just rank us one, it's guaranteed for you there. But let's say that, you know, you get married and your spouse has a job in San Francisco, well, that's fine. You know, you can transfer over to the four-year pathway and then just do what the majority of our med school students would do and then apply through the traditional means that way.
0: That's nice. I was going to go into that next because Mm -hmm. I was a student unlike you who knew coming into medical school, you know, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's all I was a pre-med for. That's all I'm applying to medical school for. And in the end, the Air Force decided differently for me. (laughs) But I still miss the OR and those 6.30 a.m., uh, 6.30 in the morning uh, operations. But the ability, it sounds like, for students to, it's kind of like a mix and match and what fits the student the best. And that sounds great. It doesn't sound like you guys are forcing students to commit and you know what, you're stuck in it or we're going to kick you out. It sounds like you guys have really built this around the student and that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Again, you know, it's about choice and we don't want to limit choice. And there are some people who are adamantly opposed to a four-year process. And, you know, I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, of course, but I don't understand the resistance to offering choice to people to change. As I said before, you know, it's amazing how forward-thinking we are as a society when it comes to treatments. But if we followed innovation medicine, the way we practice You know, medical education, we'd probably still be doing pneumoencephalograms and angiograms to diagnose brain tumors. (laughs) And we'd still be bloodletting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, I don't understand why people would not offer choice. And, you know, we don't ask students to sign a document in blood saying that they're, you know, you're going to be doing the residency that you signed up for. There are multiple opt-out points that the students can choose if they have a new interest. If they decide, yeah, you know what, I was doing internal medicine, but you know what, I really like OB. So for that, they can actually, if there are spots open in the three-year pathway, they can transfer over pending the application process. And so they continue along the three-year, but now along a new track, no harm, no foul. And again, worst case scenario, you transfer over to the four-year pathway and continue that. One of the other things you know that I think is key about this program and one of the benefits is that we have a very strong educational informatics group here. And we have this educational data warehouse that allows us to track progress on how students do. and. I see you know, our curricular reforms as the next step towards a long evolutionary process to move away from a strict tempo-based mode of, of training students to a competency model, right? So let's take a look at, um, at like my residence, for example. You know, radiology residency training is four years. And yeah, the way it works, you know, we all fall on a bell curve distribution, if you will, based on our aptitudes and our ability to get through the program. And the vast majority of students can get through and are competent after four years. But the fact is that it is a bell-shaped curve and there are some people on either side who may require more time or conversely can get through faster. And that's why the holy grail is going to be to have a competency-based model of promotion, if you will. So the AAC and many of the member schools, we're one of 11 schools who've got these awards to basically investigate this further, are identifying which are the key competencies that our medical students should have, what are the milestones they need to reach and by what time. And then what sort of entrustable professional activities they need to have so they can be doing procedure X, for example, without eventual supervision. And so the goal would be, if I look at my residents, would be to say, okay, these are the things that I think you need to have competency in as part of being a pediatric radiologist. And if you can do those things in three years, then God bless you. You're done early, right? And so that's where we're going with this training because I think that saying that you have to have four years of medical school training. When you've got another 10 plus years of training after you, that just seems a bit outdated and inflexible and doesn't really individualize it to what the student or society really needs from people.
0: That's funny that you started talking about that because right before you started talking about that, I wrote down another question and you specifically talked about the fact that these students are getting such increased exposure to the specialty that they quote unquote know that they want to do for the rest of their life. and. That exposure typically isn't gained until the third or fourth year when there's a little bit of extra time during their clinical years and their rotations, that it sounds like this increased exposure could lead to more awareness of what's going on and better education and hopefully maybe shorter residencies.
1: Oh, completely. I mean, that's the plan about the individualizing the instruction plan for the students. And one of the things we noted, even with the people who are attracted to the three-year degree, is that many of these students... You know The ones who actually get in, for example, have shown, have had experiences within the field beforehand. There was an orthopedic applicant who had co-written a textbook, a chapter for ortho. We have two PhD students in there. One of the PhD students, for example, who is in medicine, is interested in rheumatology and has done significant research of the nature of her thesis, was on basically articular cell death, I believe. So students will come into this with already extensive background before and so that's why again the ability to offer them a path that accelerates them into the career that they want to have is definitely something that the students want and I think that society would benefit from. You know, the WMC has projected that physician shortage by, what is it, 20, 2030, based Mm -hmm. on a variety of factors, not the least of which is the increased, you know, introduction of patients by way of increased access through, you know, Obamacare. And the fact that, you know, physician, the workforce pool is changing in terms of its demographics and in terms of the hours that newly minted physicians are willing to work. And so then it's sort of incumbent on medical educators as a whole to make sure that the amount of physician hours, uh, physician productivity, for example, is commensurate with what patients need down the road. And the ability to, to fast track some docs who have a clearly defined purpose as to what they want to do, clearly could pay dividends for folks. Then yeah. there's the financial
0: part too. Oh yeah. One less year of tuition is good for everybody. Yeah. Except the so, lenders.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but I'm not concerned with their interest per se. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at, so you're saving roughly 75000 in one year's uh, worth of tuition fees, housing, and uh, you got to factor in the like, travel costs associated with the residency application, you know, uh, process. And then you also look at getting a year's worth of revenue earlier. Mm-hmm. And for the folks who are interested in finance, you could do like an NPV analysis, and, or you could just do a back of the envelope calculation, you get somewhere on the order of a, $250,000 savings to the choice of that decision. And, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at.
0: Well, sounds good to me.
1: Yeah, I wish I had that in my pocket.
0: So I, I want to flip this around from mm-hmm. the student changing their mind to a residency. Now, I don't know. It sounds like this program's still very new, and I don't know how many students have gone through it at this point. But mm-hmm. we're not all the best at judging character from an interview, from that initial exposure to an applicant. And so what happens if during these first couple of years where the med students going through this program, the residency turns around and goes, you know what, this person isn't who we thought they are. They're not going to fit well here for the next seven years and for neurosurgery.
1: Well, you know, that's actually a great question. I'm kind of glad you asked that because it speaks to something that I, I particularly am I'm proud of in terms of what we've done with regards to admission. So. Yeah. you know, People have argued that medical school admissions is critical to the physician workforce. Why? Because when you look at what's the biggest obstacle to becoming a physician, really, and that's getting into med school. After that, the attrition rate is extremely low. So it is important that committees across the country get the decision as right as possible from the get-go. Now, as you mentioned, it's impossible for us to get the decision right 100% of the time. And when you look at what gets people into trouble, it's really not academics, actually, because you know GPA and MCATs are fairly good predictors for how students will do within the preclinical portion of the curriculum. And they're very good predictors of how students will do in step one and step two of the boards. But they don't do as well with regards to how they do after that, right? So how will they do in their courtships in step three of the boards and then beyond? Because of that, it aligns with Ensuring that we get the best possible crop of students for residency training, we moved from the standard interview format to that multiple mini interview format, which I love actually. The MMI, I, you know, I'm not sure if you've actually had this in one of your podcasts, but the MMI has been shown repeatedly over multiple studies to be a far more reliable and valid method for assessing students. And the reason we moved to it was because not only is it a much better predictor, in fact, that it is the best predictor for clerkship performance out there. But it's also fair to the applicants because it reduces the ability of bias to basically torpedo somebody's application in med school. You can see how, with one application, one interview, if the person is biased against you, that could sink you. But it's kind of hard to believe that all eight interviewers would have the same bias. But the MMI does look at a variety of different factors that are important to residency directors. And interestingly, we deployed the MMI last year, and I've had several queries from some of our residency program directors who are interested in utilizing the format to interview their residents. So I think with the MMI, with the attention that the committee pays to selecting students, we've minimized the risk of having students whom residency program judges down the road say, yeah, you know what? It's just not cutting it off from across. But that said, it's not bulletproof, right? So we have a set of standards the students have to do. They have to remain in the top 50% of the class. They have to maintain professional behavior at all points in the time. But one of the things I think that mitigates that, the need to even sort of address that is, again, I come back to mentoring, right? And these students become part of their departments right from day one. And they have a mentor who continually meets with the students, who tracks their progress, and makes sure that little problems don't become larger problems down the road. And I think it's already paying dividends. Yeah. Our first year group has just finished their first year, so now they're starting their second year. So yeah, we need more time to to come up with data. But for example, when we had a webinar this past spring from the current three-year students to prospective applicants, I was taken by the fact that all four of the students who were presenting on their experiences described the departments that they were in as their departments. And so that kind of speaks to how invested that they felt in part of the group and I know people tend to perform better if they feel that they're happy in the group that they're in and that the group that they're in cares about their success. So it is, you know, a concern in the back of our heads, but not a large one, because I think we selected a good group of students and there are the appropriate means in place to assess their progress and then take care of issues if and when they arrive.
0: Yeah, that's great. And yeah, we haven't talked about the MMI yet. And so that's one thing on our to-do list. I want to talk about your thoughts in the general medical education pre-med world about what makes a great medical student and how pre-meds can start preparing for that journey.
1: Okay. So people have always asked me, so what do I have to do to get into med school, right? And I find that's a difficult question to answer because, you know, when you look at what we look for, there
0: is no one specific template that will guarantee success in medical school. Thank you for starting off with that. (laughs) There there are no checkboxes. There are no, and in fact, I hate the checkbox thing. I have to do X number of shadowing opportunities.
1: No, no, no. You have to do what it is to make you A, happy, and B, productive, and C, passionate in whatever field it is that you choose. When we look at doctors nowadays, The days of the triple threat, you know, the the doctor who was great at uh, clinical care research and education, honestly, it's really difficult to be a pro at all three of those things. We don't expect our students to bring an amazing portfolio among those three areas, but I am expected to ensure that the class that we put forth collectively meets those three needs for our patients, right? So I've got to have some students in the class who are going to be excellent clinicians, who've done a good deal of community service and have shown a dedication to helping their fellow men and women. But I also need a group of people who are interested in coming up with the next series of biomedical discoveries that allow new treatment options to come through, and then other students who are interested in education. So what I advise students to do is, first and foremost, you have to make sure that you are academically successful. You have to show us that you can perform well in your courses over the long term uh, by means of You know, a solid GPA. You have to do well on the MCAT exam. I actually like the MCAT exam because it provides a standardized means of assessment across different schools and we've also moved away from prerequisites. We no longer have any prerequisites. We have a variety of recommendations again in line with our move, future move to a competency-based mode of admissions and we could talk about that more if you like. But the key is you have to be academically successful. Is that enough? Obviously not, right? When I look back to the doctors that sort of were instrumental in me making the decision of going into med school, it's not like I did that because I was impressed with their MCAT score. I liked how they made me feel, right? And the truly successful doctors are the ones who can then apply that fund of knowledge by way of excellent non cognitive skills and emotional intelligence, right? So so there was this one YouTube video I saw about this consultant who was having a meeting with some Google executives, and he talked about the importance of IQ versus EQ. Mm -hmm. And so Google gets incredibly intelligent people from the population to work for them. But when you look at who's successful within that small subset of high IQ individuals, it's the people who also possess high EQ, emotional intelligence. And that's particularly important to medicine. That's one of the reasons why we moved to the MMI. So, you know, we look keenly at what personal attributes applicants have that will predict to us that they're going to be warm, caring individuals who can relate to patients so that the patients come away from that experience saying, yeah, you know what? I value this doctor's advice. I'm going to follow through on what he or she recommends and so forth. And then the experiences, right? So what have you done to demonstrate to us that this is something that you are passionate about, that you value, that drives you to be successful, that speaks to the passion you have for medicine and for helping people? And that's key. There's got to be something in your application that talks about a selflessness that says that you want to be in this for others. So that's what we look for as a committee. There is no specific template that is the one path everyone has to follow. Again, it has to be individualized. And you have to show to us basically what path you've taken to get to this point in the application and why that justifies acceptance. And you know, I would prefer people to do fewer activities, if you will, but have a greater depth of involvement in those activities because again it shows me that this is something that they personally value and it also pays dividends for them because you know if you've been working with the same researcher or with the same you know community outreach program for three years then that person knows you very well they can see how you respond to challenging situations and how you can redirect your efforts when need be for example and they can write you a great letter when it comes down to it as opposed to the letter from a bio 101 professor who says, I didn't personally know so-and-so, but the TA tells me that they performed admirably in their lab and yada, yada. That doesn't carry as much weight as somebody saying, I've worked with this applicant for three years now, and she stands out as one of the top three applicants I've ever seen in my 20 years of working with college students. So, you know, those are some of the things we look for. We obviously look for people who have the experiences and attributes that suggest to us that they're going to be you know, leaders like revolutionaries in healthcare and are going to change the field of healthcare for the better. And, you know, the committee tries to get a well-rounded, diverse class to meet the needs of diverse patient population that we have here at NYU.
0: That's awesome. I want to finish up and go back to the three-year program Mm -hmm. and talk about measuring the success of the program and measuring whether or not these students are coming out ahead or equal to their peers that are in traditional four-year programs. How are you looking at whether or not these students are successful in the end?
1: So there will be the traditional metrics, right? You know, in terms of how they perform on their board scores, how they perform on step one, step two, and step three. Again, you know, there's limited value to their, those scores, predictive ability to say how good a doctor is, for example. But I think the key thing in that educational data warehouse that we talked about before, right, so we've identified a series of competencies that we are assessing our students and continuing through into graduate training to see how well the students do and compare them with their four-year cohorts. We're hoping and we expect that the students will track every bit as good and maybe even in some cases better than our current four-year students in large part because of the mentoring abilities and the close attention to meeting these competencies and milestones that we've you know, designed by way of that educational data warehouse. You know, we, it's in its infancy. We are one of several schools that are looking at accelerated pathways. And we recently had a symposium with a variety of other schools, I think some California schools, that are looking at further tracking student performance along a variety of different metrics. And I think this is going to be uh, an exciting time for medical education.
0: Yeah. And one thing, if you've thought about it, if you haven't, I hope you do. And something I talked about with Dr. Mueller from Mount Sinai about the FlexMed program is the issue these days with physician satisfaction and the workload and just how everybody supposedly is unhappy in the workforce. And I'm hoping that with your program and the early exposure to these fields that students truly will know what they're getting into, meaning that they will be happier in the end because they know that that's the right choice for them.
1: I completely agree. And again, I come back to the whole aspect of being integrated in the department early. It allows applicants, I believe, a greater... Degree of insight into seeing what it would be like to be, for example, a plastic surgeon or a pediatrician because you get exposed to their departmental conferences, to their daily workflow. You can get a sense firsthand as early as first year of seeing what it's like to be a doctor in that field 10, 30 years down the road. So you can make, I think, a more informed decision. I mean, that speaks back to the discussion that I had with my mentor in psychiatry where I had to reevaluate as a fourth year. I had to reevaluate the decision that I probably should have made earlier because, again, I did not get access to the kind of experience that would have given me the info as to what it's like to practice in field X versus field Y. These students, in theory, have access to that information early on and hopefully can make a more informed decision as to how this career choice will fit into their overall life. And yeah, I agree with you. I think that that is one potential way that can increase physician satisfaction down the road.
0: Dr. Rivera, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything else that we didn't get to cover that you want listeners to know about NYU?
1: Not. I think we've covered most things. You know, I do want to say that, again, I think one of the key things that C21 and our three, four, and five-year options, one of the things we focused on tremendously is making sure that we have, you know, a patient-centered and disease-focused curriculum that really allows us to individualize it, again, to suit the needs of the students who are going through it. I strongly believe that a one-size-fits-all model is incredibly outdated. And though this is not perfect, I think it's a much-needed step in the right direction. And other schools are looking at different things, and we're going to see what pans out as the best potential solution. But I feel pretty good that this is a good step in moving the fields forward towards that competency-based model of admissions and promotion through UME and GME.
0: All right. That was Dr. Rivera. Again, very interesting twist on medical education. The fact that I can go to medical school and based on my abilities to do things, I can change really the duration of medical school. Based on my abilities during residency, I can change the length of residency. And I think that's important. I think we typically have forced everybody into the same model and not everybody is the same. And so if I'm good at reading radiology films and X rays and MRIs and C T scans, if I am some sort of a an idiot savant, so to say, why not let me graduate a little bit earlier than people that are students that are taking a little bit longer? So I think it's kinda cool. I think it's interesting to see where that's going and I'm excited for it. If you haven't taken the MCAT yet, go to free and download our 30 plus page report all about the MCAT giving you awesome tips and tricks and even some discount codes for some test prep. Again, that's free So one exciting thing, we're here at episode 96 or session 96 as I usually say. And again, just a reminder, You can go to our special show notes specifically for this page at medicalschoolhq.net slash 96. But one of the cool things that one of my goals that I had as we started approaching this was to get 200 five-star ratings, U.S. ratings before episode 100. And it's session 96 right now, episode 96, and we just hit. 200 five star ratings, which is awesome. And I want to thank you for leaving those ratings. If it wasn't for you guys, then typically iTunes ranks us higher when people search and are looking through the podcast list. So every rating and review greatly helps us. We had a bunch since the last time I mentioned them. I'll read a couple here. Conrad Dom says, unbelievably great. S. Mazzaro says, informative and entertaining. We have our Friends up north in Canada, Piano Chick 13 says, very informative. And Rowan, one more here. Ashley B42 says, great med school podcast. So thank you. There's a couple more we'll read next week. If you haven't yet left a rating and review, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes, where you can leave an honest rating and review for us. We'd appreciate it. Session 100 is creeping up on us, and I've talked about it a couple times already, but we want to share your stories, your stories of overcoming whatever obstacles that you've had to overcome along the way. And that doesn't mean that you have to be in medical school right now or be a physician. It just means that you survived freshman year in college and how you survived it. And share that story with us. Share it with our listeners so that they can gain the inspiration from you like you have gained from others that I've talked to. So email me, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. And in the subject, just put session 100 so that I know to look out for you. Well, I hope the information that you gained today will better help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. And more importantly, I hope you join us next time here at the medical school headquarters.